0: Listening to the Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White.
1: So, Jeff, um, look, I'm I'm really excited for today's guest. Um, uh, I, I first heard uh, Darren at a, a B2B uh, conference uh, focused on on e-commerce and digital transformation more uh, more broadly, and. Uh, uh, well, uh, folks, I guess I, I think it's fair to say that Darren struck me as the kind of lawyer that you want to have on your side. Uh, I think that, that uh, that's always a good thing, I think, in, a, in some way, and I thought he had some great insight to share. So um, let's get started, shall we? Uh, Darren, without further ado, welcome to the Cooler
0: Ring. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Darren, why don't you introduce to uh, the listeners... Um, little bit about who you are and what you do, and uh, specifically talk about this online seller enforcement practice
0: here. Sure. Uh, so I'm a, a, a partner in the uh, Boris Sater, Seymour Pease Law Firm. I'm based in our Pittsburgh office, and I am one of the uh, co-leaders, along with uh, a partner of mine in Cincinnati, of uh, a group that is, oh, I, I think, truly unique in the country and You know may have a few groups tangentially similar but you know our our mission statement is to help companies control their sales in uh today's digital age that we find ourselves in and and you know we refer to ourselves as as the Voris online seller enforcement group and you know we we help companies uh that are struggling with the fact that historically they had sold their products perhaps into distribution distributors would resell and perhaps resell beyond that and you know historically they didn't really care about what happened with their products once once they sold them initially because you know somebody may not know what what somebody was getting a product for in pittsburgh for example versus what somebody was getting one for in chicago or you know pick pick your places but today you know with the advent of e-commerce and in particular online marketplaces, it's very easy for uh, a seller with no investment in your brand with whom you have no contact, no uh, oversight uh, over to somehow get a hold of your products and, and put them up for sale online. And that has been very disruptive for companies. Uh, and you know it, it does all sorts of things in terms of erosion of their brand equity of their brand value it's it creates a lot of channel conflict between e-commerce and on and perhaps brick and mortar type settings Um, you know it's it's very um, damaging to uh quality oversight and and things like that so you know the the pain points driven by this phenomenon are significant and you know a number of major companies in in a number of different verticals consider these issues to be among the very uh, most pressing most threatening to their organizations today
1: I think that that was um, that's what really got me as we as we you know as I sat down I was starting to listen to you um, it, you know I just noticed everybody in the room starting to, to, to write and it struck me that you know the that we were speaking to, uh, to a lot of key pain points, and you mentioned them, the channel conflict that this can cause, etc. I guess to, to what extent, let, let's talk a little bit about, because it seems to me that consumer product manufacturers would maybe be a little bit more attuned or at least have felt the, the pain a little earlier of unauthorized uh, online reselling uh, versus maybe uh, something that is just kind of coming into uh, a point of concern for those B2B professionals that were in the room that day. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between that, or if there are many, and and just kind of the general state of the nation? And, and beyond that, I'm curious, just how many manufacturers overall or, or do you feel are even approaching this in a savvy or sophisticated way?
0: So what we're seeing is that it is the distinct minority of companies that really understand the appropriate strategy to uh, achieve their business goals, which are typically consistent across across companies largely. Um, you know, and, and that is because there's just so much confusion out there. There's a lot of vendors in the space and, you know, companies are, we call it kind of a bridge to nowhere type situation where they go down a path. Um, thinking that that it is going to solve the underlying problem, and that could be something like a map policy they may try or sending some C&D letters out or things like that without sort of looking at this holistically and really getting to the root cause of the pain that they're feeling, which typically, you know, in, in the vast majority of cases stems from a fundamental lack of control over their their sales channels and, and their, and their products once they leave their, their, you know, their warehouses. Um, and so it, it, success comes from regaining that control and, and everything else is kind of a half measure that's going to leave a lot of people frustrated and, and having spent a lot of money.
1: So what I hear you saying is that people are, uh, you know, they, they they're, they're, they're you know, maybe have maps so or a minimum advertised price for folks who don't know map policy or, uh, uh, They've worked through um, uh, beyond that, per- perhaps they're struggling with just uh, working with their legal team or what have you, with cease and desist letters to unauthorized uh, um, resellers. They're having some level of success or not with that. And basically what you're saying is uh, it all stems from the fact that they failed to lie the really lay the appropriate foundation for um, – an overall uh, strategic approach to this, and it really seems like uh, if I were to put words in your mouth a bit, like they're they're patching holes in the boat, if you will, rather than dealing with the yeah, I, that's
0: Yeah, whatever analogy you want to you want to put on it. I mean, putting a bandaid on a you know kind of a sucking chest wound. I mean, you need to get to surgery and get the underlying cause fixed. <laughs> the bandaid's not going to do anything for you, yeah. um, other than frustrate you long term and frustrate your good customers. Uh, so. So absolutely, you know, I, I, I absolutely believe that. And, and, and you know, like, for example, a, a, a company, you know, and they, somebody gets on, you know, somebody gets a call from the C-suite and they just think, OK, I've got to go fix this problem. They start poking around online. They, they come up, they, they come across the notion of map policies. So, you know, they may reach out to like a map monitoring company that has a software and they have this software that scrapes the Internet and says, oh, we'll give you all this data. You just need to put this map policy in place. Here's a form, send it out to everybody and, and you know, you'll be good to go. A month later, you know, or a week later, whenever the cadence that they're on, they get some massive spreadsheet with all of their map violations. And they don't know who these people are on these storefronts. And, you know, they're trying to hold their good customers to map. But the good customers are upset because there are all of these unauthorized sellers out there and saying, how do you comp- expect me to compete in this environment, and you know, pretty soon they end up scrapping the map policy, and sort of, you know, everybody has their tail between their legs and, and is upset about it. Um, you know, relatedly, oh, you, you know, there's a lot of vendors out there that say, oh, we'll send C and Ds and we'll send automated letters, and you know, we'll we'll do all this and we'll drive a hundred takedowns a month. But you know, what they don't tell you is how many of those people just change their name and pop back up someplace else. They don't tell you how many new people came in. They don't tell you that you know they may be removed. Several sellers that were just, you know, relatively innocent people, not thinking they were doing anything wrong, and just had a one or two things maybe in their garage that they put up for sale on Amazon, and those those aren't the problems. It's it's the diverters and the professional sellers that are out there that won't do anything in response to a CD And so, you know, it, it, a lot of companies are, are trying these these half measures, or they're looking to the to the marketplaces themselves for help, and and the resounding answer is, you know, that that they're operating an open marketplace and that these issues are distribution issues that the companies need to address.
1: So if we're going to get an appropriate foundation in place to deal with this in a strategic way, then that tells me that there's probably a foundational understanding that we need to have that we're not operating with today, that manufacturers are using uh, MAP policies, C&D, etc., uh, as a way of attempting to solve a, a deeper problem. So well, I guess what, what's underneath that? What do I need to know, uh, that's, that, that, that's, that's driving this. And, um, and, and, and then how do we begin to, to, I guess, put in place the, the right framework, the right structure, uh,
0: to make this make sense? Sure. So we, you know, we believe very strongly that this, <coughs> excuse me, that this, um, to solve this issue uh, requires five steps, f- and they're all interlocking and intertwined, and depend each dependent on the other in terms of their abilities to su- to succeed overall. And you know, we quantify you know success in terms of you know is are you maximizing the your ability to grow your brand in a protected way. In the e-commerce channel, that is not going to cannibalize your other channels, okay? And you know, I'll I'll just kind of tick off tick off these steps, and and you can let me know if you'd like to go in anything in any greater detail. But let's do it first. We advocate you need to get the right um, strategy in place with respect to how you're going to sell your products on the marketplaces, and in particular, you know, we recommend that. You know, you select one uh, sales method on the marketplaces, and 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 ideally one or a very small handful of um, it, permissible sellers on the marketplaces, because you don't want to have, you know, this massive intra-brand competition. That's I N T R A brand competition, you know, on the marketplaces where you're you're pitted against yourself, or your brand is pitted against itself before you even get out the door to, to really, you know, engage in competition with your true competitors. So, you know, when you have a situation where you're sitting out there online on and on like, for example, in an online marketplace, and you've got, you know, you have your listing out there and then you have, you know, 20, 30, 40 other sellers, all, all advertising under that, that listing, you know, that, that is just an incredible amount of intro brand competition for your products. And, and you want to be in a place where, you know, you have one, you know, could be a, you know, the marketplace, the, like a marketplace retail side or a, a 3 P seller or something like that um, out there selling your products. And, and you know, maybe you have an, a handful of other trusted sellers, but you want to get away from this notion that you have this wild free-for-all, particularly in an online marketplace. So once you have that, that right marketplace um, distribution method uh, set, you want to then have appropriate policies in your other sales channels that make clear about the, the where, the when, the how uh, your products are allowed to be sold by them in an authorized fashion. And you want those policies to reach down to each level of your distribution. So if you're selling in a two-step distribution, for example, you would have a policy with the distributor. And then the distributor would be asked to pass down your authorized reseller policies. And among other things, these policies would prohibit the sale of your products by that reseller on a third party website without your express permission. So then, then once you have that in place, it allows you then to scan the entire Internet at a moment's notice and understand right away whether somebody is an authorized or unauthorized seller of your products, because that will drive the the enforcement that you're going to be doing. Thirdly, you can implement, once you have a structure like that in place and the ability to understand who's who, you can implement something like a map policy. So that now you have the ability to have parity in terms of your advertised prices across your various channels without, you know, without, the the appropriate you know sort of foundational controls in place you know if you've got a map policy and you've got um, just a free for all where you know your resell- you, you know your resellers aren't aren't told they can't turn around and sell online without your permission you, you're gonna you know one of my one of my colleagues says it's like um, like leaving you know his kids in in his house with ipads and all their favorite candy and saying you can't touch this stuff when I leave it just doesn't work um but when you have those foundational controls in place now you have the ability to start to be able to do things like map programs and things like that so you know you get your map policy in place now you also need a basis upon which to uh differentiate your products from those sold by gray market unauthorized sellers and you know when you when you're set up the appropriate way you know, you have the ability to protect the quality and integrity of your brand and your trademark. Um, and, you know, as a as a result of that, companies will have legal claims against those selling their products in an unauthorized fashion. So it, it gets you away from having to say, hey, you know, just send a message to like some type of messaging platform on a marketplace or something. Hey, would you please stop selling my stuff? You're not authorized. Well, you know, those go in the in the trash can with the $100 that that, that that seller may have gotten that month. So, you know, you need that legal foundation now. And that, you know, that can be, you know, in, in terms of, okay, these are benefits that come right. with my authorized products. These are quality controls associated with my authorized products. And now, you know, when you put those things in place, you know, they're, they're just very important in the e-commerce channel because, you know, people get what shows up on their porch. You know, they, they can't, grab the next one on the shelf if the box is dinged up, or if it looks like the, you know, the product is going to be expired soon, or they just don't like the way it looks. Um, you know, they, they don't have the ability to, to hold it and feel it and make sure that they're comfortable with it. And so, you know, brands just can't be at the mercy of these unauthorized sellers, you know, who knows how they're storing their products, how they're caring for the products. And it really is very damaging. I mean, you look at any, encourage any brand to go online and read your product reviews. And you know you will be astonished at you know the stuff that is ending up in people's hands, uh, and and you know when you have these appropriate quality controls or benefits in place associated with your products and your authorized channels, now you can go out and say everybody selling outside of these channels is doing so in a way that infringes on my trademarks. And
1: I think this is the point in your presentation where you, you really began to explore. Yeah. Uh, what first sale doctrine meant in the introduction of uh, non-material, uh, sorry, uh, non-physical material differences in, in, into the situation. So, so, I guess talk us through that a little bit.
0: Yeah. So, under the first sale doctrine, um, you know, it's a it's a a legal doctrine that I mean, just to put it in very basic terms, it. You know, it, it, it stands for the principle that as a manufacturer, you know, once you sell something the first time, make your first sale, i.e. the first, you know, first sale doctrine, you have effectively relinquished your ability to control, control it downstream. And it can be bought and resold, uh, you know, without repercussion. And that is generally true, okay, unless the product that the, that the reseller is selling, okay is quote-unquote materially different than products, than your genuine products.
1: And I think, probably putting words in your mouth here, but so many people make the mistake of thinking that a material material difference means a physical difference.
0: That's right. That's right. And, and what the courts say about that is, you know, courts have recognized that it is the subtle non-physical differences that are most deserving of protection because those are the the types of differences that are most likely to confuse consumers. OK,
1: that's interesting to me because it's not just that, oh, well, non-physical differences can also play in this. But it's actually the courts have recognized that the non-physical differences are more important.
0: Well, that, that, that they are that they are very deserving of protection, um, you know, because, say, for example, a manufacturer has a warranty on the product, but only extends that that warranty to products purchased from authorized sellers. And there's a number of reasons why a manufacturer might do that. I mean, they just may feel that, look, with all of the touch points at issue in the sales channels and all of the sort of shady goings ons in the e-commerce space, you know, if something is sold outside of our authorized channels, we have no idea how it's being cared for, treated, whatever, before it gets to the end user. So we can't warrant those products. But, and so as a consumer, you know, if you are not expressly told and, and you know, these online, rese- you know, anonymous, unauthorized online resellers do not say, hey, by the way, what I'm selling doesn't come with the manufacturer's warranty. No, I mean, they list under the, under the listing and hold themselves out as having the same exact thing. And that's, what, that's where the confusion comes in.
1: So how do you enforce that then, Darren?
0: Well, so, you know, it, you as a, as a brand would determine who is behind you know, if it's not readily evident who's behind the the operation, you know, the the online selling would investigate, find that identity, find that identity, and now, you know, instead of ABC products, you know, storefront, you realize that that it is, you know, John Smith that lives on Main Street in, you know, uh, Los Angeles, and now you have a person and the ability to exert. And leverage your legal claims against them, uh, given that they are causing consumer confusion by purporting to sell the same types of authorized genuine products that are sold under your trademark, when in fact they're not. And so now, you know, you're not dealing with an anonymous storefront, you're dealing with an actual person or an actual company. And, you know, we we would recommend some type of escalating enforcement action. I mean, you could start off with a and d letter saying, hey, you know, we know who you are. Here's why what you're doing is not appropriate. Here's why the first sale doctrine doesn't protect you. And here are the types of damages that you would be liable for if you don't stop. And, you know, you can go from there uh, all the way up to and including a lawsuit. You're listening to The Cooler Ring, conversations on manufacturing marketing. Don't forget to subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash thecoolering. That's K U L a partners.com slash the cooler ring.
1: Do you find that uh, many of the distributors that are working with the manufacturers that you deal with, uh, are pushing back against this or, or are they uh, seeing the benefits as well? And,
0: and yeah, work? I think by and large distributors understand that, you know, that they're um, that their existence is threatened. Uh, By this, by, by this disruption. And, you know, they want value in the brands that they are selling, that they are choosing to, to represent. And they understand that with all of these people out there reselling products with no investment whatsoever that, you know, don't, don't need to, you know, make any margin on their products because they, they don't do things like have sales staffs. They don't do things like invest in product training they don't advertise. They don't. They don't do anything, and they make it, you know, incredibly difficult for you know distributors and and others and the in this in the uh, sales channels to have a basis upon which to continue selling the product. So by and large, you know they they are very receptive to this, and oftentimes you know applaud manufacturers for taking control. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some that that. Are selling to diverters and know that they're selling to diverters and want to continue selling to diverters, but you know, as a as a manufacturer, you know, you need to look at that. You know, we call those kind of fast food sales. I mean, they you know they may taste good, you know, initially, but they'll end up hurting you in the long run.
1: That that makes total sense to me, and it, it, you know, the distributors distributors who are uh, you know that, that that you're that are worth having. Uh, They don't desire channel conflict any any more than the manufacturer does. I'm curious, um, of course, most, uh, and this is a sweeping generalization, so I guess I should say a lot of the more popular uh, online marketplaces are based in the U.S. Um, But obviously manufacturing is a global thing. So an awful lot of manufacturers are based outside of the U.S. but are finding... Uh, that their products are perhaps making their way onto u s uh, based uh, marketplaces, which uh, you know makes everything that you're talking about very relevant to them, but puts them into a legal framework and situation that they're even uh, less
0: familiar with, I would think. Are you finding that
1: in your practice?
0: Yeah, we do see that a lot. I mean a lot of them, you know, have some type of u s operation or you know office um, And you know we typically work with with that entity, but there are certainly, Oh, I can think of a number of European entities that that we represent that that are you know sort of locus of 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 power and and presence is in is in Europe, um, and they are they're trying to unwind this issue here with the U.S. based uh, marketplace sites. Um, so yeah, yeah, we see that a lot.
1: Are you finding at all um, that this is almost entirely a reactive measure on the part of manufacturers? Is there anyone who is coming into this and setting this up from the very beginning with you?
0: The answer to your question is yes. In a few limited instances, one may be where it's a new product launch. Okay. That's not already out in the market and they can kind of get control of it on the front end, uh, or two, you know, a, a new company that, that well, frankly is dealing with a new product launch. Um, but, you know, but what you're seeing, like, a lot, you know, a lot of these companies are household names that have household name products and mm-hmm. You know they are—they're trying to put the kind of the genie back in the bottle here after after they realize that that, that it's out of control and the difficulties that they're having um, with everything as a result.
1: Yeah, I'm just imagining uh, those brands, I mean established brands that are experiencing uh, this and are finally coming to terms with it in a reactive way. Just the um, to even begin to. Quantify um, what it could be. I guess the the possible cost, not what they're encountering or what they've encountered so far, but how much risk exposure there is. It's
0: even hard to put a number on that.
1: In some way. Well, it is. I mean, it and it's a,
0: you know, it, you know, sales are impacted. Certainly, you know, certainly margins and things like that are impacted. They have the whole. There's reputational risk in terms of you know when you have so many bad reviews on a, on a, you know, a large e-commerce site, you know, that, that, that is very impactful. And actually, you know, in, in that regard, we see a lot of the old line manufacturers where, you know, they're not really maybe a growth story anymore, but they have incredible brand loyalty and they're realizing that, that as they don't, you know, as they continue to not have control, they continue to have people out there representing their brand and selling their products that are selling very, Low quality, perhaps expired, damaged, improperly cared for products, and you know those those reviews go up then from disgruntled consumers. now when somebody's comparing, okay, you know I want to replace my, you know you name it, some some household appliance, okay, and uh, I'm I'm looking to see, and here's my favorite brand that I've had for the last ten years or fifteen years, and and let me go and see what people are saying about it versus what are they saying about their competitor. And, and that, that that's very concerning for a lot of companies.
1: Yeah, I, look, I think it's a huge blind spot for a lot of manufacturing marketers. I, I think it's something that, um, you know, if you think of so many of the, the potential downstream impacts uh, of um, of this, so much of them are, are, are challenges or problems, frankly, that the marketing department ends up being tasked with fixing. Um, but I, I, I just think that they, they maybe haven't considered... Uh, what they could be doing up front to to address this appropriately. So I think this has been a really helpful, uh, uh, really helpful discussion, Darren. I, I think I'm really excited to to, to hear what the, the listeners think. The um, uh, so as we just wrap up here, any kind of parting thoughts as we uh, as we conclude?
0: Well, I I think that what what manufacturers and brands have to understand today is that you know that this is a a totally new world with a totally new set of challenges and they need to sort of fundamentally revise their thinking in terms of what's wor- what works and what what is a best practice or what are best practices and you know they need to really delve into this holistically i mean i'll tell you when we go to meet with any company of any size you know we we you know delicately insist that That the people present be somebody with responsibility for e-commerce, somebody like in a VP of sales role and in-house legal and whoever the the business leader is uh, for the particular business segment, because you need buy in and alignment across each one of those uh, disciplines within an organization to really grasp and implement the the appropriate strategy to, to allow these companies to be able to protect themselves and grow. Um, you know, as fast as they can in in, t- in today's age. So, so you know, it, it everybody just needs to, to sort of come around to that. And, you know, there is a way forward and there's a path forward that, that is not going to be wildly disruptive to your business or require a ton of investment or anything like that. But it does require a thoughtful, holistic approach to, to be able to reassert that control and, and succeed going forward.
1: I think that's a great parting advice. Thanks so much, Darren. Uh, it's been great chatting.
0: Well, great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at kulapartners.com slash cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash Cooler ring.